good? All right. Welcome. Good morning. Greetings. Hi there. Happy Sunday. My name is Mark. I get to serve as one of the elders in our church, and it's my joy and privilege to bring the message from God's Word. This morning we're in a series in 2 Corinthians called Old Made New, but uh, uh, I want to greet an old friend. Paul, where, where's Paul O'Brien? Where are you? Right there. So Paul and Leah, welcome back. Kids are downstairs, I guess, but Paul and Leah, we miss you. Paul uh, and Leah were members here, and uh, Paul served uh, the youth ministry here wonderfully, and we miss you and are glad to have you back for the weekend. So, greetings. Um, as I mentioned, we are in a series in 2 Corinthians. We're in, in this section, chapters 10 through 14, uh, that sort of this section sort of hangs together. So this is the second message in that little section. And this morning we are in chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I want to encourage you to um, have, a, have a Bible and keep it open, uh, whether it's paper or a device or whatever, uh, as, as we go through the message and uh, follow along as Holly Todd reads the passage for us this morning. Good morning. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as, hmm, uh, as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things." Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. <clears throat> and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Thank you, Holly. Let's pray. Oh God, oh for a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
we quiet our hearts, we humble ourselves, and pray, O oh God, that you would establish in some and increase in others a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to the Son in whom is your delight. Direct our gaze to him, clear out obstacles to that, and promote a great devotion to the great king that we've been singing to and about, we pray. Amen. This passage is about discernment. In order to illustrate the idea of discernment, I want to talk to you about the stuff that's in the refrigerator. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you need some discernment when you open the refrigerator? Like things that are solid that used to be liquid, you want to discern probably not to eat that, right? That egg salad sandwich from the 4th of July? Maybe not. Like, I don't know, do you have that experience with your refrigerator where you kind of have to, like, is this okay? Is this, like, these leftovers? Like, milk is especially tricky, isn't it? My mom and dad, they have a magnet on their refrigerator that says, when you open the door, if it walks out, let it go. <laughs> so, you know, with... With the food in the fridge, sometimes you've got to kind of figure out, like, is this okay? Is this not okay? Going to get sick from this? That's how discernment works. You're sifting out. Discernment is the ability to, in your mind, separate one thing from another. You can eat this. You shouldn't drink that, right? It's to recognize something as distinct. Now, this whole passage, 2 Corinthians 10 to 14, is all about discernment. It's discerning these false apostles from the true apostle. If, if I could summarize these four chapters in one sentence, it would be in Paul's voice, Paul saying to the church in Corinth, church, throw these false apostles out of the church before I get there, or I'm going to do it when I get there. That's the one sentence summary of these four chapters. Now, why does he take four chapters to say that? The problem is they ha have a diminished confidence in him, trust in him, and so he knows that if he says it that bluntly, he's going to risk losing them altogether. It's, it's kind of like if he was in a phone conversation with them. He's got some things that he's trying to say and hoping to be able to say, but he's worried that they're going to hang up on him before he gets a chance to express all that's in his heart for them. So these are four chapters of pastoral wisdom. This is an experienced and seasoned spiritual leader who is using every tool that he has at, at his uh, availability to seek to gain a hearing and to gain trust with this reluctant church in order to get them to do what they need to do to be right before God. So you'll find there are appeals here. There's irony here. There's sarcasm here. It can be kind of confusing in, in reading these chapters if you don't understand all that's going on. Some, sometimes he's speaking ironically or even sarcastically. He's realized that if he's going to be heard by these people, he's going to have to do some things he doesn't really want to do. He's going to have to speak their love language. You know what that is? 
is boasting. And so he's, he's edging towards boasting. And actually the passage that you'll hear next week as Justin brings the, the rest of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12, he, he's actually going to move into boasting there. He really doesn't want to do it. We saw back in chapter 10, he's appealing for obedience to Christ. He's appealing for them to recognize the authority that he has, which is an authority to build them up. He's trying to get them to listen to him. And now what he's doing in this section here is he's calling out his opponents. He's pulling the mask off the pretenders that have made their way into the church and is exposing them for what they are. So this passage, this, this message is called Paul versus the super apostles because this is really like an epic showdown. You got Paul on the one hand, and you got the super apostles on the other. These super apostles are these guys who've wormed their way into the congregation at Corinth. They've won the hearts and minds of these people, and Paul will not give up on them. This is a call to spiritual discernment. It's a call to congregational discernment. And what he's doing is he's going to force them to choose between him and these super apostles because that's choosing between faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to lies and deception. This passage is a powerful call to us to be a spiritually discerning congregation. Now, thankfully, I'm not aware of a single false apostle here this morning, and so we don't need to call anybody out and have any kind of excommunicating going on like that. But do we still need to be a spiritually discerning congregation? Yes, we do. Think about the times we live in. There has never been a time when so much information is available. Never in human history has so much information been available to people. And that means never in human history has so much misinformation been available. So many half-truths, so many partial truths truths. Lies abound. And so we must be a people who learn to discern. This isn't a new problem or a new need, but it's a very contemporary and pressing need. To put it concisely, this passage is a call to be discerning church members, to be a discerning church. Now, we're going to unpack the passage by just asking what, what needs to be discerned. So these first Six verses, the first paragraph here is really a need to discern the presence of seductive lies. So keep your Bibles open. Look back at verse 1 with me, please. Let me try to just explain what's going on here as we come into this passage. He says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now what's going on here? Here's sort of the announcement to the the passage. Why does he say bear with me in a little foolishness? Well, if you're going to understand these four chapters, there's three words or little groups of words that you really need to get get your mind around. One is this word boast or boasting. Another is this word foolishness or or fool. And then the third is, is weakness. If you get those words and concepts, you'll be able to unpack this passage. And part of the challenge is he uses the words boast and fool or foolish in different ways at different times. So you've really got to track with him whether he's using those things sort of in the way he sees them or in the way that his opponents in the church sees them. For now, let's let's understand that when he's talking about boasting, he's talking about a way of, of, of arrogantly exalting yourself that these super apostles live in. 
They arrogantly boast of their gifts. They exalt themselves. When he's talking about foolishness, he's saying that's what you do when you boast. Right? So to enter into boasting is to enter into foolishness. And he's saying, I don't want to do this. I hate to do this. But I, if, if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to get across, the point across to you guys, I'm going to have to enter into a little foolishness, a little boasting with you to try to get traction with the church. Now, the word weakness, as it will come into view next week, is vital because what you'll see he does brilliantly here is he takes the concept of boasting and as he begins to boast, he flips it completely around. He turns it, turn it, turns it on its head and he'll end up boasting not about his greatness and his accomplishments and his skills and his oratory. He's going to boast about being imprisoned and shipwrecked and weak and persecuted. He's going to boast in his weakness. So that's kind of, those, those concepts set up this whole section. So he says, bear with me as I enter as, with a little foolishness because he's, he's going to just nudge into boasting a, a little bit in, the, in this section. Verse 2, he gives us his motives. Look at this. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. I feel a God-given, a God-like jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What's he talking about? I betrothed you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's saying, I'm the father of the bride. And there's this arranged marriage. You are coming into being as a church in order to end up united to Jesus as a wife and a husband would unite. When he talks about this wedding between the church and Christ, he's tapping into a Bible theme that you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just one example, Isaiah 54, 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And Paul's saying that he is jealous that this bride not fall for another lover, not be an adulteress or runaway bride. God is, in fact, a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5. When we think about jealousy, we, we often have kind of what comes into mind is a, a self-centered, resentful kind of human jealousy. But God's jealousy is his holy affection for the good of his people. That's the kind of jealousy that God has. And he says he has that kind of jealousy for this church because they are in trouble. And he explains the trouble in verse 3. Look there with me. He says, I wanted to present you as a bride to Christ, but I'm afraid, verse 3, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's a problem in the church. There's a snake in the garden. There's a deceiver that's made his way into the church. Now, as he says this, he's looking back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Master Genesis 1 to 3, and you'll have a a, a good sense of how the storyline of the scriptures go. In, In that passage, the serpent says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? So what's he doing there? He's challenging God's word. Did God actually say? And he's challenging God's goodness. So you can't eat from any of those trees? It's a slander against God by implication. 
What had God actually said? God had said, the garden is yours. Eat from every tree except this one. There's a no trespassing sign on one tree. But he enters into this dialogue with Eve and before you know it, this temptation leads to her being convinced that the best way forward is for her to ignore God's word, to blow through that no trespassing sign, and to eat this forbidden fruit that the tempter says will make her as wise as God. How'd that work out? She died. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you about that part, didn't I? See, that's how the tempter works. But she didn't die before she and her husband opened Pandora's box and unleashed lies and death and sickness and brokenness and corruption into paradise. And now that same tempter is at work in that church. God's adversary is using slick leaders to pull people away from Christ. They're luring people. They're still talking about Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. They're still talking about the gospel, but it's not the same gospel. They're still there in the spirit, but it's not the same spirit. How can we discern these lies? Because that tempter, he is here today. He's here in this congregation. He's at the congregation down the street. He's just as busy at work in the church in the world today as he was in Corinth. How can we discern the presence of seductive lies? Well, the key of it is right there in verse 3. I'm, I'm worried for you that you've been led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's the plumb line. There's the litmus test. When anything or any person displaces Jesus Christ from the center of your affections, you're in trouble. Because that's a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. When devotion to Christ is declining, we're in trouble. Some lies, some distractions, something false has begun to take root in our hearts to pull us away from that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so Paul is saying, church, wake up, reject those lies. Have discernment about what you're listening to. The second section, verse 7 to 11, he's talking about motives. So he's saying, church, I want you to be able to discern the motives behind a leader's actions. They did not understand why he was doing what he was doing, or more importantly, what he had done in the past. So look at verse 7. He says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? What's he talking about here? I humbled myself so you could be exalted. I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Well, here's the background. When Paul arrived in Corinth six years before this letter was written, it was the fall of the year 50. He decided he would not accept any money from this new church plant to, to, to support him for the work that he was doing there. Now, we're not sure exactly why he did this, not sure that he did this in every city. And in fact, in the first letter he writes to this church, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's very clear that a church planter has the right to receive support from the people that, that, that he's serving with, with the gospel, but he chose not to exercise that right here in this church. Instead, what did he do? You can go back and read about it in Acts. He 
made and sold tents, and he received financial support from other churches that he had recently planted, and they supported him while he was there preaching the gospel free of charge. After he left, I mean, that's a pretty nice thing he was doing, don't you think? Like, that's pretty noble, pretty virtuous. Like, he's there preaching the gospel. For, he's working hard, making tents. He's, these poor churches up north, they're supporting him. And you know what happens? This is how crazy things can get in church. He leaves, these super apostles come in, and they begin to infest the church with these lies and they begin to slander him and the result is that Paul is criticized for not accepting money from them. Right? You expect him to be criticized for maybe taking too much money or being in it to get rich, but here the guy never took a denarius from them and he's getting criticized for that. How crazy is that? Can you see what's happening here? The culture that they lived in prized public speaking. They prized great oration. And so when these false apostles came in as these noted public speakers in a Christian setting, the, the, they followed the cultural standards that the better the speaker, the higher the fee. We, we have that go on today where maybe an ex-president or a CEO of a company can just receive enormous amounts of money for one speech well, that's what it was like in Corinth. And so the narrative seems to have sort of developed along these lines. Well, hey, that Paul, what a loser. He didn't even charge us anything. And you get what you pay for, right? Didn't charge us anything? Worthless apostle. We need these guys who are cleaning us out of all this money. What great leaders. It's nuts. That's how sin works. It's insanity. We would never sin if we weren't somehow believing lies of some kind. Can you see how the culture has made its way into the church? Why did Paul not charge them anything? He explains his motives right here. I humbled myself so that you might be exalted. Look at verse 11. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Can, can you see how he's thinking? Can you follow the pattern for his thoughts? Do you understand his motives and what got him to that place of saying, I might have the right to, to, to receive offerings and income from these people, but I will not accept it. Can you, can you see why he's doing this? He has the mind of Christ. I humbled myself so that you might be exalted. Who does that sound like? Where have you heard that way of thinking before? That's Jesus. He's embraced the gospel. He's embraced a Christ-like way of thinking. And now it's beginning to work out in his daily life. Is that happening for us? Motives. Chapter 5, verse 15. Our theme verse for our youth ministry. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Not self-exaltation, but self-humbling. But for him who for their sakes died and was raised. How, how, how do we get this way of thinking? It comes straight from Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became 
poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Almost a one-for-one template for the way he's thinking about his interactions with these people in the church. Self-humiliation for the sake of others is the way of Christ. This church doesn't want that. What do they want? They want celebrities. They want superstars. They want influencers. They aren't looking for people who will manifest the humble, serving heart of Christ. They're happy to be exploited and used by these people because of the culturally informed, worldly way of thinking that they have about leadership. We might just just slow down even right here and ask ourselves, what are we looking for in leaders? What do we prize? How do we evaluate leaders' actions? And do we think about motives? And do we prize and seek out that self-humbling, exalting of others that we see here because the reality is just like in Corinth we continue to live in a culture that prizes celebrities prizes being on top prizes popularity prizes likes and all that worldly thinking seeps its way into the church too we need to discern the motives behind a leader's actions and this case his motives are wonderfully Christ-like humbling of himself in order to serve and exalt others, following the way of Christ. Third, discern the evil activity of Satan and his servants. Look at verse uh, 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even... Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. How'd you like to be in the church when this letter is read and you're one of those guys? Their end will correspond to their deeds. I want you to think about what's happened here. Paul plants a church. He's there 18 months. He leaves. These super apostles swoop in. What was it about their preaching that stole the hearts of these people? Their gospel was corrupt. Their lives were corrupt. The church loved it. How does that happen? They swallowed the bait, the hook, the sinker, the bobber, the whole thing. They swallowed it all. Why? Listen, these weren't just flawed leaders. Listen to this description. False apostles. Deceitful workmen. Hear this one disguising themselves. They knew what they were doing. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Satan's servants. That word is diakonos. They're literally Satan's deacons, right? They weren't sent by Christ. They didn't accurately preach Christ. They didn't use Christ's methods or reflect his heart, but they captured the affections of this people. How did they do that? By deceit, by disguise, by trickery, just like their boss, Satan. He never shows up and says, hey, I'm Satan and I'm here to lead you to hell. Come on, you want to go? He never does that. 
I said, did God really say, hey, have you, have you thought about that tree over there? So brief side trip. Satan comes up at the beginning of this passage, the end of this passage. We live in a world that kind of has this expectation that there may not be anything supernatural, there may not be any life after death at all. And so the idea that there could be an evil supernatural being is, is, is just not in, in most of the, the, the cultural conversation. So from, from God's word to us, who is Satan? Who is this we're talking about here? Well, the word in Hebrew means adversary. He's sometimes called the devil, accuser, tempter, the evil one, the God of this world. And, and what does he do? Get this. Get this and it will help you. His native language is lying. He's the father of lies. What he does is he, he deceives and he divides. That's what he's about. John 8, He was a murderer from the beginning. How did he murder? How did Adam and Eve die in the beginning? It was because they believed the lies that, they, that he tempted them with. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. All misinformation, all lies trace their source back to this person, this being, Satan. What's his goal? He's filled with hate. He's jealous of God. He's filled with malice for God, for God's people, for God's glory, for God's truth. And so he will do Everything and anything in his power to tear down anything that God is building, to destroy anything that God is up to, to distract anyone and everyone who's got their attention on Christ, to lead us astray from devotion to Christ. He's always prowling. He's sowing seeds of division. He's doing it here today. He's doing it in every congregation. He's doing it in every Christian's lives all around the world. He's eager to do anything that will distract you and me from devotion to Christ. What's going to happen to them? Their end will correspond to their deeds. His end will be to be thrown in the lake of fire. Final judgment. Revelation 20. Now back to Corinth. This liar who's out to divide and do anything he can to just get people to be distracted from their devotion to Christ. He'll, he's happy to set your attention on anything else. He's distorted the gospel and he's done it through these false teachers. I want to ask you the question now. You get this letter. You're in Corinth. You're a member of the church. You get this letter. What should you do? What would you do? You're a member of this congregation. You've got to see these guys for who they are. You've got to discern their doctrine, discern their character, discern the way they practice leadership, discern that the aroma of Christ is nowhere in their ministries, and then you know what you must do? You've got to throw them out. You've got to rise up and throw them out. Listen, Paul writes this letter. I don't know where the elders were in this church. I don't know what's going on with the elders, but I know this. Paul expects the average member of this church to be discerning enough and courageous enough to understand 
what the problem is to discern these leaders are false and have the courage and the skill and the wisdom to get them out of the church. He expects you, the average typical church member, to have the grace, the skill, the knowledge to do that. This is a powerful passage in what it expects of a typical church member. This is one of those passages that has such a high view of church members that it it's, leads to reinforcing my congregational uh, form of government uh, uh, understanding. It's passages like this that led me to becoming a, 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 a congregational uh, uh, church government person because I see that God expects so much of his people. God thinks so highly of believers like you, that you're going to know what to do in a situation like this and find the grace from God to carry it out. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, just, just two thoughts. First, learn to discern the enemy's seductive lies. We need to be able to discern lies from truth, half-truths from full-truths. How, how do we do that? Well, it starts with being humble, Right? That's why we prayed this morning, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why? Because we so easily go into temptation and fall for evil lies. And, you know, it humbles me to look back and see how in my years as a Christian, I have been led astray. I've been led astray by false ideas. I've been led astray by people. I've been led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, I'm susceptible to these things. We're all gullible and susceptible. There's nobody that's bulletproof, 100% protected against the lies of the enemy. We need God's help. Humble ourselves. Second, we need the word. We need God's word. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need the word constantly. We need the word in our minds. We need the word in our hearts. We need the word in our spiritual bloodstream, in sermons, in private devotions, in fellowship with other believers. We need that word informing our minds so that drip by drip, day by day, our minds are being conformed to the kingdom of God and to God's way of thinking and not to the kingdom of this world and the ways of the culture that comes so naturally and easily to us. And oh, how we need community, how we need one another. No one can do this effectively and completely on your own. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We need one another and we need elders to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. We need humility. We need scripture. We need community. Let me just tease this out in one sort of illustration. Let's think about for a moment how to bring discernment to your spiritual diet, right? What are, the, what are the spiritual inputs? What are the things that you receive uh, spiritually on a, 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 on a regular basis? What kind of spiritual intakes do you have? Sermons, like you're getting one right here, right now. Where else do you get uh, inputs and, 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 and intake? Maybe it's listening to people on or watching people on TikTok or is it Instagram preachers or YouTube videos? Maybe you like to read books or listen to podcasts or listen to other sermons or, uh, or follow particular blogs. Here's the question. What are your strategies for discernment with the things that you take in? Because there are lies out there. Not all material is created equally. There's a liar out there. How do you discern a person's character and doctrine 
than that person who's on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or a book, an author. If you don't think these things matter, hey, I know they're a little crazy, but man, so gifted. That's kind of like what Corinth thought about the apostles there. These things do matter. Maybe just one example, worship songs. A lot of music being created, a lot of worship songs being created, a lot of worship ministries out there. story can kind of go like this, right? You, you, you hear a song, it's good, you like that song, and so you listen to more by that same group or that same artist, and that, that song maybe draws you to their ministry, and then that ministry maybe opens you up to a church or to a, a, a teacher or a, a preacher, and, and before you know it, you're invested in that one song has sort of led you into a whole experience of a ministry and you're invested but what's your strategy for discernment on the way remember satan never says hey it's me want a few lies that'll help destroy you like he doesn't advertise like that he's tricky he's deceitful if if there are bands or ministries that have some good songs but lots of other songs and teaching that are unhealthy what what do we do with that these things matter. So that's why as a, as a leadership, we, we do not just evaluate individual songs, but songs within the greater context. And we're going to shy away from it and be very careful about songs that come from a group, a church, a ministry, where there's lots of unhealthy stuff going on there. Why? Because we are passionate to preach the same Christ, to accept the same spirit, and to follow the same gospel as the one passed down to us from the true apostles in our Bibles. We want to be a discerning church that's continually growing in devotion to Christ. We want to lift up Christ and reject lies. We want to increasingly humble ourselves and exalt others like Christ. We want to be a people who grow day by day, year by year, when people like Paul and Leah come back and they've been gone for a while. Our hope is that they encounter us and they say, oh, your devotion for Christ is greater than it was last year. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of people we want to be. And that requires discernment and the Spirit's that's why we're grateful for passages that can seem sort of strange and foreign to us, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. But when we begin to, to soak in it, we realize, oh, this is a great gift. What a gift to have God's word. So with devotion to Christ in mind, grateful for the gospel, let's turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, which I have cleverly forgotten to prepare myself for. Leslie, would you be kind enough to... Help me out. Thank you. Thanks. And if you're like me, you can run back to the tables in the back and grab one of these things. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, Christ. I want to ask you to discern one more thing before I finish. Can you discern in this passage that we just looked at, can you discern in this Bible that we've had open, can you discern in this great gospel, can you discern the great love of God for his people? Can you discern that? Listen to God's word in Hosea 3.1. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Have you ever had this for a communion meditation before? <laughs> go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves 
the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, can you discern the great love of God for his people? Through Paul, God is saying, church in Corinth, I love you. Come back. Prophet Hosea is called to love an adulterous wife as a picture of the love that God has for his people. Can you discern the never-failing, never-ending, new-every-morning love of God? Jealous for his people, not because he needs us. He was doing just fine without us. No, he's jealous for us because he loves us. By a miracle of grace, he loves us and we're his. So as we prepare to take this small meal signifying our communion with God, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to participate whether you're a member of this church or not. If you're not a follower of Christ, this wouldn't really be an appropriate thing to do because it's a family meal. But I want to encourage you to take this time to consider the claims of Jesus Christ and that you come to him as Lord and King. Before you take and eat and drink, is there anything leading us astray, leading you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Is there anything? If there is, if the Spirit's convicted you during this time, you can repent right now because God loves you. Can you discern his great love for us? The wafer in your hand represents Christ's body. Can you discern in this little wafer representing the body of Christ the love of God to send his only son to die on a cross to rescue sinners like you? Take and eat. This cup, Jesus taught us it represents his blood, his life. Can you discern here the love of Christ for you to give his life to bring you into a new and eternal covenant with him? Can you discern here the love of the Spirit for you to open the eyes of your heart to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ? Oh, the blood that bought me. Take and drink in Jesus' name.